Section 12 of Psychotherapy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hilara. Psychotherapy by Hugo Munsterberg. Chapter 10 The Mental Symptoms. Part 2. In discussing this method of sidetracking the complex, we mentioned that in other cases the result is reached by bringing the memory of that first experience to a vivid motor discharge without substituting any other ideas. For that purpose, no direct personal influence is necessary. Treatment might just as well be performed by correspondence provided that the right starting point is discovered and that right suggestions are given. As an illustration, I may choose a case which shows at least the maximum distance treatment by mail from Boston to Seattle. This particular case presented no difficulty in getting hold of the starting point as my correspondent, whom I have never seen, himself at once pointed to the original source of his obsessing idea. The patient, who lived with his family in Seattle, wrote to me the following. I shall undertake to describe in a few words a condition which the writer has fought against for about eight years and which has subjected him to untold mental anguish. I was backward in a social way but altogether happy. After working in a bank about a year, was discovered one evening by the cashier smoking a cigar in the basement, was unable to look him in the face at the time, went home that night and thought very little about it. But on the following morning, during the regular course of business, I stepped up to him to ask some question and, as usual, unconsciously looked him in the face. His glance was questioning and suspicious, and that was the beginning of a life of anguish for me. At first I could not look him in the eyes, then, when looking at some other person, I happened to think of it, and so on, until in two or three days it was impossible to look at anyone who came to my window. The cashier did everything he could for me. No use. I quit my position, lost most of my friends, had to leave a happy home and came to Seattle to work for an old school friend. In the first year, owing to new environments, I managed to conceal my mental condition to a certain degree. All of a sudden, I was again plunged into the depths of black despair. It took me about two years to partially forget it when the same thing occurred again and I lost my grip. The last time, about 18 months ago, was almost more than I could stand. These three or four instances I speak of were cases of extreme despondency, but my usual mental condition is extremely unhappy. If occasions arise where I have to sit and talk to anyone for 10 minutes, controlling myself is such an effort that it leaves me with a case of the blues. I shall come and see you, as the relief would give me a new lease on life. This letter was written on the 23rd of January, 1908. I replied to him at once that he certainly ought not to come from the Pacific to the Atlantic, but that I wanted him to write to me much more about that first occurrence. As he was evidently right in considering that episode as a starting point of his troublesome associations, I supposed that these associated ideas had not yet become independent, but were still the effect of that first complex. Therefore, 
I wanted to bring that to complete this charge. Accordingly, I wrote him to think himself once more into that happening of years ago, to pass through it with all the power of his imagination, to describe it to me then in as full a statement as possible, and to express in the letter also his conviction that there was no reason to avoid the eyes of his superior, that he might have looked straight into his face. As soon as he got my reply, he wrote to me on the 6th of February a description of that first episode, filling 19 pages, telling me all about his relations to those various men and every minute detail was brought clearly to consciousness again. I did not add anything further, but the expected occurred. On the 18th of February, he writes to me, In the last week or 10 days, the writer has noted a decided improvement regarding mental condition. The result is a new interest in life. If you can spare the time, would like to have you write me a few lines. Gratefully yours. At the end of the month, he writes, Received your letter about half an hour ago. Hastened to assure you with a great deal of pleasure that I am feeling much better. Since sending you the letter regarding the first case, I have noticed day by day an improvement. On the 8th of March, since writing you last, I have noticed a gradual improvement. It has given me wonderful encouragement. On the 10th of March, just a line to say that I am still improving. On the 12th of April, I desire to say that since the taking up of treatment with you, life has had a far different appearance to me than it has had for the last 10 years. On the 21st of April, since my first letter to you, there has been such an improvement that I have accepted a position which carries with it much responsibility. This case leads over to the large group in which the obsessing idea involves the relation to a particular person. I find in such cases auto-suggestion more liberating than hetero-suggestion if the development has not gone too far. Of course, auto-suggestion can never take hypnotic character but makes use with profit of the transition state before normal sleep. The type of these cases which are everywhere about us may be indicated by the following letter. The writer is a young woman of 24 whom I did not know personally. She wrote to me as follows. I am a writer by profession and during the last year and a half have been connected with a leading magazine. In my work I was constantly associated with one man, the managing editor. This man exerted a very peculiar influence over me. With everyone else connected with the magazine, I was my natural self and at ease. But the minute this man came into the room, I became an entirely different person. Timid, nervous and awkward, always placing myself and my work in a bad light. But under this man's influence, I did a great deal of literary work, my own and his too. I felt that he willed me to do it. The effect of this influence was that I suffered constantly from deep fits of depression, almost amounting to melancholia. This lasted until last fall, when I felt that I should lose my mind if I stayed under his influence any longer, so I resigned my position and broke away. Then I felt like a person who, having a drug to stimulate him to do a certain amount of work, 
has that drug suddenly taken away and without it i am unable to write at all i wrote to the young lady that she could cure herself without hypnotism and without my personal participation i urged her simply to speak to herself early in the morning and especially in the evening before going to sleep and to say to herself that the man had never helped her at work but that she did it entirely of her own power and that he had never had an influence on it and that she can write splendidly since she has left the place and much better than before a few months later she came to cambridge and thanked me for the complete success which theotor suggested treatment had secured she was completely herself again and was fully successful in filling a literary position in which she had to write the editorials the book reviews the dramatic criticisms and the social news as a matter of course such treatment had removed only the symptom the oversuggestible constitution had not been and could not be changed thus it was not surprising that in the meantime while her full literary strength had come back she had developed some entirely different symptoms of bodily character which i had to remove by hypnotism as soon as the obsessing idea of the influence of another person takes still a stronger hold and develops systems the suspicion of insanity always lies near especially when hallucinations are superadded the probability is great that we then have to do with the delusions of a paranoiac and thus no case for psychotherapeutic treatment yet it is always wise to keep a psychasthenic interpretation in view as long as the insanity is not evident i may mention such an extreme case the patient a man of middle age highly educated for years had heard voices calling his name a man with whom he had some personal quarrel had as he believed hypnotized him from a distance and made him act queerly or do things which he really did not want to do by telepathic influence it is a development which is found quite frequently abnormal organic sensations or abnormal impulses and inhibitions which the patient cannot account for by his own motives become connected with some vague ideas which are in the air like wireless telegraphy or telepathy or hypnotism from a distance or electrical influence or magnetism or telephoning these then attached to an acquaintance who stands in a certain emotional relation here too some organic sensations evidently had been the starting point and the idea of the man with whom he quarreled had been secondarily attached from this starting point more and more detail was reached every action was brought into connection with the powerful enemy who controlled more and more even the normal and reasonable doings of the patient my first impression was decidedly that of a paranoiac yet in some ways the case suggested another view there had remained an insight into the unreality of the obsession the patient did not really believe the theory of the telepathic hypnotic influence he felt it more as an idea which he could not get rid of and he did not know clearly himself whether he requested hypnotic treatment on my part for the purpose of counteracting the hypnotic power of his enemy or for the purpose of liberating him from his exasperating fixed idea moreover i found that his voices had no hallucinatory character but were merely sound images i decided to make the experiment without great hope of success i hypnotized the man deeply 
and suggested that no one can have power over his actions, that he is the responsible originator of everything that he does and that no one can influence him and that from that art he would feel free from any telepathic intrigue. The effect of the very insistent and urgently repeated hypnotic suggestion during the first rather long treatment was such a surprisingly good one that I decided to continue the psychotherapeutic cure. I hypnotized him daily for two weeks. The belief in the real wrongdoings of an enemy disappeared entirely from the first. It was at once apprehended as a mere obsessing idea in the own mind and this idea itself began to be resolved. It lost its unity. The absurd impulses were still felt but they became less and less connected with the idea of another man and as soon as they were rightly understood as doings of the own mind, the opposite motives gained in strength. A stronger and stronger appeal to his own power made these motives more and more influential. Slowly, the association of the influence of the other man faded away entirely. I intentionally had not given any attention to the pseudo-voices inasmuch as they had not taken any relation to the ideational delusion. I therefore did not include them in my suggestions as I considered it wise to confine hypnotic suggestions always to as few points as possible. Yet these voices decreased too. At a certain point in the cure I substituted, to save my own time, an auto-suggestive influence or rather a mixed one inasmuch as I had him read ten times a day a letter of mine which contained appropriate suggestions. After about six weeks, all the disturbances for which he had sought my advice had disappeared. Obsessing ideas of such personal influence involve, of course, always a certain amount of emotional excitement and they may lead us to the unlimited field of disturbances in which the persecuting idea is surrounded by emotional attitudes. Analysis shows easily that the emotion is an essential factor and that it persists in the disease, while the ideas to which it clings may change. Central is the emotion of fear, nearest to it that of worry, but any emotion may give colour to the particular case. Again, any number of methods may be applied and a few illustrations with quite different ways of treatment may indicate more fully the character of the trouble. There is no doctor in the city and none in the remotest village who may not find such cases in his near neighbourhood. Of course, slight degrees are easily hidden by the patient's own inhibition of external expression. If such suppression by the own will secures a real overcoming of the unjustified emotion, this is surely better than to begin any medical treatment. But as the suppression usually means simply lack of discharge and thus offers all the conditions for an unhealthy inner growth of the trouble, the neglect of such disturbances is most regrettable and frankness of the patient must be encouraged. Such situation demands a careful observation of the whole case and a subtle adjustment of the treatment to the individual needs. It may perhaps be helpful at first simply to indicate the varieties of the more frequent disturbances of this kind by quoting from various letters. Each case belongs to a type which can easily be removed by psychotherapeutic influence, generally even by a skillfully directed auto-suggestion. The writer is a young man. 
I have always, as long as I can remember, been very nervous and sensitive. When about seven years of age, I was attacked by St. Vitus' dance. Before that, I cannot say whether I was particularly nervous or not. Afterward, it was impressed upon me by the remarks of relatives that I was nervous, so that I soon took note of this condition myself. The manner in which this weakness has been especially troublesome is that it has caused me to be very shy. I shrank from new acquaintances and disliked being observed. Often, in walking along the street, I imagined myself closely noticed by the passer-by and I always felt uncomfortable. About three years ago, I suffered from typhoid fever and after recovering, a new form of the old trouble showed itself. This time, I imagined that when eating, I chewed my food in a manner that was ridiculous and which made people hardly keep from laughter in observing me. Often I had to leave the table when half through because I felt I could not bear having critical eyes upon me any longer. About three months ago, I determined to be troubled no further by my own foolish fancies and by constantly schooling myself, I have improved very much. Still, however, when I walk alone along the street, I must fortify myself mentally before passing each group of people. If once I allow myself to think that they are looking at me, I feel almost paralyzed. My feet seem too heavy to lift. My arms do not seem to swing naturally. And, and in attempting to look placid and unconcerned, I feel that I am failing utterly. Also, when at table, I must still tell myself before each mouthful that I have no need for fear, that my manner at table is equal and perhaps superior to the others beside me. I have gone a certain length in my self-training and have relieved myself of a great deal of the mental distress. But now I believe I can advance no further. What seems needful now is to do away with the self-consciousness which brought on my worries, though whether this is possible is hard to say. Here the letter of a young woman, the type which fills the army of the mind healers and faith curists. For years I have been seeking, or perhaps to be more accurate, I should say waiting, for a mind to drift toward me. A mind that would understand my particular case of fear brought on by the constant bullying and nagging from my earliest childhood by those in my home. This fear of brutality has greatly depleted my nervous system and has unfitted me for the strong, useful, forceful life I should have expressed. If I could only rid my mind of the thought that I am always displeasing, or rather going to displease people, for I hardly do displease them, if I could get rid of the fear of caring what the attitude of other minds toward me is, I feel that I should then strike out into a strong life of helpfulness to others. In other words, I have always felt behind me a great force pressing me out into public work. When I was a child, it was so strong that I was sat down upon brutally to so great an extent that I feared to voice my convictions and that fear still clings to me like a nemesis. It seems that every individual personality in a public or private audience rises up to overwhelm me, causing my tongue to grow heavy and my mind to become a blank. This enervating fear blends into every thought I have 
whether sleeping or waking. I have fought with all my might to rid myself of it, but so far in vain. Here an expression of a very frequent variety. The writer is a middle-aged man. I am possessed of a fear that is constantly with me, that something dreadful is going to happen, and I do not seem to be able to overcome it. I am told by physicians that I am bodily sound, although very nervous, and that the fear is generated entirely by auto-suggestion. When at its worst, it weakens and terrorizes me, and in my better moments, I am tormented with a fear of a recurrence of a bad spell. It is fear over fear. A year ago at this time, I had a very bad spell, but got along fairly well through the summer. But I am afraid that I will soon again be in a bad condition and lose all that I may have gained. The fear of a fear is indeed a symptom which the psychotherapist has to fight extremely often. But as soon as he has really recognized it and analyzed the whole mental condition, he will hardly have any difficulty in uprooting it. I add a letter of a school teacher in New York. He writes, I am teaching in a high school. I am of a nervous temperament and constitutionally limited in endurance. Often my work is done in a condition of greater or less exhaustion. I find that I blush very easily in purely freakish ways when there is no occasion for it. I find this blushing connecting itself with certain of the girl pupils of my class in a conspicuous way. It occurs hardly ever except when my class is facing me and I seem to be powerless to overcome it. I have always tried to live a careful moral life, but my early life was very much secluded. I lacked entirely the free intercourse young people usually have together and I felt awkward with others for a long time. In the matter of the blushing, it sometimes occurs in the case of girls who are especially pleasing to me, but also not infrequently in the case of some who are not at all so. The whole thing might be passed over were it not that it has considerable effect in causing constraint toward my students, and in some cases affecting them very strongly in an emotional way at the very time of life when such things can do most harm. I regard the matter as being so serious that it brings directly in question my right to teach. But I do not feel at all sure I could find other work that I could do if I give up my present position. The very thought that on a particular occasion it would be extremely awkward to blush makes it almost impossible for me to avoid it. But we have rather now to consider the therapeutic side and we may begin again with a routine method of a simple hypnotic treatment. The patient is a young university professor. His intellectual work is perfect in all directions. There are no nervous symptoms, though there are some slight disturbances of digestion. He suffers as soon as he comes into a crowd of people and as soon as he is on any high place where he has to look down. The worst, when both conditions are combined, as for instance at a concert or a theatre in a balcony seat. But every meeting of many persons, even at church, produces all the symptoms of nervous excitement. He was easily brought into hypnotic state by verbal suggestions. When he was in hypnosis, I reinforced the conditions for an opposite attitude. I told him that as soon as he was in a crowd of persons, he would feel especially comfortable, would enjoy himself, would fully enter into the spirit of the occasion 
and feel especially secure in their presence. Whenever he should be on a high place, he would enjoy the safety of the ground on which he was standing or the seat on which he was sitting. I assured him that he would neglect entirely whatever he saw and would rely completely on his safe feeling resulting from his tactual impressions. After having hypnotized him three times, the disturbance disappeared completely and even an evening at the theatre in an exposed box on the balcony was enjoyed without any discomfort. After about a year, at a period of fatiguing work, some traces of the anxiety appear again. This time, two hypnotic sittings were sufficient to remove the disturbance of the equilibrium, which as far as I know has not come back. The same hypnotic treatments were used in a secondary way to remove the digestive trouble. I again quote the case of a teacher, a profession in which the psychasthenics are unusually frequent. It is a case of a young woman from the Middle West. The young lady wrote to me, I come of a race of strong women and I am not hysterical or easily frightened by many things that disturb women. Since my 15th year, I have been seized by hallucinations of absurd or serious nature which no reasoning could explain away and which have gradually undermined my power of resistance to them. At the age of 22, after a year of unusually hard work, my nervous endurance gave way and with this breakdown came a sense of fear and a horror of crime that I have been unable to overcome. I have never felt the slightest inclination to a wrongdoing. It is a feeling rather that my shrinking from any mention of evil makes it impossible for me to listen or think rationally when such things are discussed. This feeling has seemed to change my whole attitude towards life and has left me without power to control my facial expression or carriage when it takes possession of me. I have been able to teach more successfully than I could hope, but it is only by cutting myself off from the friendships and pleasures incident to my life that I am able to accomplish my work. I have fought this trouble alone and will still do so if there is no help. But the thought that it is the source of great distress to those dear to me makes it very hard. A few weeks later, the lady insisted on coming to Cambridge. I found that there had never been any hallucinations and that she used the word in her letter only to indicate some insistent memory images which had never taken the vividness of real impressions. In the presence of her friend, I hypnotized her deeply and strengthened through urgent suggestions her consciousness of her having done the morally right thing at every situation in her life and her conviction that she never did and never would commit a crime. Here, as always, if possible, I left alone the emotional idea but reinforced the opposite. The effect was an immediate one. She felt freer the next day than she had felt for years. I repeated the treatment a few times and she assured me that the feeling had disappeared entirely. I take the rather severe case of a woman of 50. The highly educated and refined lady had lost her husband by an accident in Switzerland, which had been misrepresented by some of the newspapers as suicide. Two years later, she wrote to me, I feel as if I had received indelible photographs on my brain 
which have since greatly affected my health and from which I may never recover. This winter, the symptoms I have been able to control returned and I have been ill. I unfortunately saw the newspaper headlines with my husband's supposed suicide. Though I exclaimed then, how outrageous, I felt as if I had been struck and since then I can seldom read a paper without dread and apprehension and the hearing of anyone's suicide fills me with terror. When I hurried to Europe on the ocean a week from the day of my husband's death, I had a curious and overwhelming shock. On opening a drawer and seeing a pair of scissors, they looked to me like a dagger and suddenly the whole cabin seemed filled with implements of death. The doctors said that I would find it hard to get over such impressions, but I told them I would as I had courage and will. But I have been realizing in these two years that I may be suffering from something that may be beyond the control of will. I often become so nervously sensitive that scissors are unbearable for me to see or a steel knife or anything that might express death. Our family physicians are still against hypnotism and if I should go to a neurologist of my own selection, it might be to one who believed still only in nerve foods, baths or a sanitarium. The lady came from the south with her nurse to Boston and insisted on being hypnotized by me. I cannot say whether a really deep hypnotic state was produced at once as I refrained from testing it. There was certainly no amnesia. Probably it began only with a slight drowsiness, but at the fifth treatment I found a relatively deep hypnosis. It was a capricious case in which the improvement was fluctuating but clearly setting in from the first day. I trained her in hearing and seeing words like death and suicide with a reinforced feeling of strength and calmness. I forced her to see and touch scissors with an artificial attitude of strength and indifference. At the same time, I reinforced her good mood and her enjoyment in life. When she left for England a few weeks later, she felt herself mentally cured and throughout the summer, her letters testified the wonderful change which the treatment had brought about. Half a year later, as the result of an exhausting physical local treatment, the psychophysiological symptoms came back to a certain degree. She requested me by a letter from England to give her some help by suggestion to suppress again the recurrent intrusions. As I had observed her strong suggestibility, I sent her over the ocean a little pencil of mother of pearl which she had seen in my hand and advised her to look at it until she counted 20 slowly and then to close her eyes and simply to sleep. The autosuggestive effect was unusually strong. She writes from London. When I saw the enclosure of your letter, I felt as if it would burn through my hand and the feeling became so overpowering that I locked it away with my jewels. But as the days ran into a week, I felt I could not live with it in my apartment anymore and I felt almost ill until it occurred to me I could seal it and take it to my bankers. I felt as dreamy and absent-minded and paralyzed as if you had just treated me. Nevertheless, the effect was on the whole the desired one and she returned to America with a wholesome freedom of mind. I hypnotized her twice again and she writes in her last letter, 
I can never repay you for what you have done for me. You have given me back my courage and my love of life in its vividness and interest and colour, all that through the last years I had so entirely lost. Even in cases where the disease itself is inaccessible to psychotherapeutic treatment, the superadded grief and worry brought on by the disease might yield to the mental influence and the whole situation would, to a high degree, be transformed for the better by it. I have often been asked to hypnotize in such cases where the depression was wrongly taken as a part of the nervous disease. Sometimes I agreed to do it in spite of feeling sure that the disease itself could not be removed. I quote an instance. A young woman, afflicted with epilepsy, was brought up in the belief that she had only from time to time fainting attacks from overwork and with them, secondarily, neurasthenic symptoms, especially spells of depression coloured by a constant fear of the next painting. She had heard voices all her life and they frightened her in an intolerable way. I produced a very slight hypnotic state. I concentrated my effort entirely on suggestions which were to give her new interest in life and diminished the emotional character of the voices without even trying to make them disappear. I proceeded for several months. The young woman herself believed that the fainting attacks came less frequently afterwards, yet I am inclined to think that that is an illusion. But there was no doubt that her whole personality became almost a different one with the new share in the world. The epilepsy remained probably unchanged, but all the superadded emotions were annihilated and she felt an entirely new courage which allowed her to control herself between her regular attacks. She had been unable to undertake any regular work before for a long while, but all that improved. More than a year afterward, she wrote me, I have really worked most of the time this past winter and spring, and I think I can see a steady though slow gain. I am reading quite little and doing it for the most part easily. To be sure, I have, after I have read, hard times with the voices, but their character is usually less determined and fearful than formerly. Several times I have thought I must come again to you, but each time I have started again to fight it out for myself. But now, as I am gaining, I can better estimate the great help your influence was to me at a juncture when everything seemed so hopeless and helpless. End of section 12 Recording by Hilara